0: Welcome to the Tour on Air Podcast. I am Nico, the founder of Tech Open Air. At Tor, our mission is to help people, organizations, and the planet become future-proof. Our T stands for technology, but it is not features, but the relationship between technology, work, and life that we seek to explore. And we'll give you context around the latest trends so you can make better decisions moving forward. Excited to now present you the following conversation I had with Nathan Mierwold. I put Nathan's profession as Renaissance man. I don't think I've ever met someone who has managed to excel at so many different career paths. From postdoctoral work with Stephen Hawken at Cambridge University, researching cosmology and quantum field theory, to becoming an entrepreneur, exiting the company to Microsoft, becoming Microsoft's CTO for years and then taking a leave of absence to earn his culinary diploma from École de la Cuisine in France to now being a food scientist, running food labs and publishing the most complete cookbooks you can ever find. Nathan has done it all and so much more, including going to 500 different pizzerias around the world to find the world's best pizza. And yes, he will share that in our conversation as well. During our conversation, I try to unpack Nathan's unique way of working and driving ideas forward. I left inspired to pursue more dreams, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Welcome to another episode of the Tour On Air podcast. And today I want to welcome Nathan uh, Mierwald. And normally, as you may be accustomed to, I don't do a lot of introduction, uh, but here I need to make an exception. Nathan is the founder of Modernist Cuisine uh, and the lead author of Modernist Cuisine, the Art and Science of Cooking, as well as Modernist Cuisine at Home, uh, the Photography of Modernist Cuisine, Modernist Bread, and the forthcoming Modernist Pizza. But we don't want to stop right there. and I will actually continue reading the bio because uh, it, I think, frames our conversation nicely. And it is uh, somewhat different, maybe, to a bio that one reads generally. So that is your last venture. But your bio really reads more like a novel, uh, to be honest. And before we get started, I think uh, uh, I want to set the stage by reading it out loud. So Nathan enrolled in college at the age of 14, went on to earn a doctorate in theoretical and mathematical physics, as well as a master's degree in economics from Princeton University, Uh, Nathan holds an additional master's degree in geophysics and space physics and a bachelor's degree in mathematics from the University of California. You did postdoctoral work with Stephen Hawking at Cambridge University researching cosmology, quantum field theory and curved space-time and quantum theories of gravitation before starting your own software company, which was acquired by Microsoft. Um, And while working at Microsoft and directly for Bill Gates as the CTO I think that was the first CTO position at Microsoft. Um, You took a leave of absence to earn yourself a culinary diploma from the Ecole de Cuisine in France. You retired in 1999 uh, to found Intellectual Ventures, which holds tens of thousands of patents. Um, You yourself are among uh, one of the most prolific inventors with more than 800 US patents awarded and several hundred uh, pending And you have kind of made room in all of that uh, for your other passions, which involve photography, cooking, and food science, with the modernist cuisine that I mentioned initially being one of them. Wow. Uh, Lots to unpack, um, and I'm not sure how we're going to do this in one hour, um, but let's start. Welcome to Tour on Air, Nathan. Okay. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I do read a lot of impressive CVs given the nature of my job, but I must say, few are so broad and diverse in nature. And it seems to be tough to create a career in any of those fields mentioned. Um, Let it know what you've done um, to really excel um, in all of those fields, it seems. So, first question off the bat what is your superpower?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure it's a superpower. You know, the the world rewards specialization. And uh, as you go through the educational system to get a PhD, you learn more and more about a smaller and smaller field until uh, the joke is you know everything about nothing. And I've never been able to focus on just one thing. I like being interested in lots of stuff, and say that's it's not really a great strategy. Most people who succeed in life succeed because they focus. And uh, I I think I have succeeded to some degree, whatever degree you think I have, despite the fact that I have refused to focus on just one thing for my whole career.
0: Why is that? Because, uh, like you said, we are typically being told, and we may see this also uh, among friends and colleagues, uh, that those who succeed succeed. Maybe there can be a generalist, but maybe not a generalist in science and food and photography and all these different, you know, you, you still sort of pick one general industry or gen- one general field. So what do you think made you succeed well, in so many? I'm
1: very curious about things. Mm-hmm. I, I like to try to find out how stuff works. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can find out about how stuff works by reading it because someone else already figured it out. Uh, other times you have to go do it. Uh, you know, some of the things that I like to do, like cooking, I like precisely because they're quite different than the other stuff. Many of the things I do involve mathematics or physics or a highly computers, a very technical view of the world. Well, it turns out that technical view of the world is useful in cooking, but there's also an artistic element there's a very sharing human element. You know, the cooking just to photograph it or to throw it down the drain is no fun. Normally you cook so that you and somebody else eats it. (laughs) So that's one of the things I, also cooking has got this great property that even a complicated recipe doesn't take you forever. So you work on it for a day, maybe it's two days if it's really got a lot of prep. And then like, it's over, <laughs> uh, unlike some of the other things I do, which are kind of never-ending, where uh, you, you can work for a very long period of time on the same project. I, I do research on dinosaurs as yet another thing. And uh, there's dinosaur papers that I've been working on with collaborators literally for years before we get to a stage where before we're ready to publish it. That's a very different kind of task than something that is over by you know <laughs> 10 o'clock tonight) <laughs>
0: So that's what I think. And I, I believe you have or had a uh, entire T-Rex also in your living room. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yes. It's there.
0: You, <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Next time we need to do the call in the living room. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you have quite the bones collection as well. Uh, you seem to be collecting a lot of different things. But before we get to these topics, like, I mean, is there a pattern? I mean, the pattern of maybe trying to... You know, invent, uh, that's still very broad. But, like, do you see a pattern of the sort of things that you then really spend your energy on because it is so diverse?
1: Well, in almost any field, there is an opportunity to innovate. And uh, although I love also finding out how the traditional things work. Pretty soon I find myself saying, well, oh, but look, you know, maybe we could do this and it would be better, and we could do that, and bum bum but um. Uh, you know, when I first started off in photography, I was very content using existing lenses and cameras and so forth, which I still do, but I also have been building my own cameras recently. Of course. To, <laughs> well, it turns <laughs> out there's things that you can do. Yeah. That aren 't possible to do otherwise, and so that becomes an attraction. And you say, "Oh, look, if I could just build this device, I could do x with it, and then you go out and you do x, and usually it turns out it's, it takes a couple of iterations before you really get there but uh, and the figuring it out and building something new is is part of the joy of it. Uh, lots of fields have a the property that there's a very well-trodden path. And yet there's lots of little offshoots that you could take, and just most people don't take them. And of course, when you take those offshoots, you discover many of them are dead ends, or they're a bad idea. This is going to sound very funny, but one property of always exploring is you're always a little lost.) <laughs> Or confused, or something else. You know, there's. If you want to stay within a field which is very all figured out, well, great. But then you're not really exploring. You know, sometimes people will use a phrase: "Failure is not an option." And whenever I hear that, I like to either think to myself, or sometimes tease out loud and say, "Well, then what you're doing must be very boring." Because the stuff that I try to do has usually never been done before. So believe me, failure is always an option. <laughs> and you have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with failing and then bouncing back from it and scratching your head and saying, oh, well, that didn't work. Now what?
0: I mean, it also, I guess, then comes down to, and this is a question I ask everybody on the show and typically later in the interview, but it's it's very fitting right now, I think, you know knowing when to stop, right, and and to, you know, give up or pivot or, you know, not have that kind of persistence in trying to figure something out. Yes. And, and, and that's a difficult one, right? And it, it comes oh down God, to yes. time management. And how do you make that decision? Is there like a mental framework for you to know that, you know, this needs more time, and this Absolutely. is a dead end? You've put your finger on one
1: of the great questions of life, I think. <laughs> You know, um, on one hand, persistence is super important in lots of things. If you are afraid of failures, you don't try something. Well, then you're never going to get anywhere. If you fold the moment that you encounter failure or some other uh, obstacle, that's also. On the other hand, beating your head against a wall forever is also problematic. Because it's possible you have some fundamental misconception, and that's why this doesn't work. Or there's a subtlety to the technology you don't understand, or or for whatever reason. So I always say you should, you know, if you find yourself beating your head against a wall, eh, give the wall a few good hard cracks, but then try to find a softer part of the wall. (laughs) Um, And... If you can't find a softer part of the wall, you really have to ask yourself again okay, you know, why am I continuing to do this mm-hmm. and in some cases, if you take fundamental physics, fundamental physics is something that people have beaten their head against a wall for several hundred years, you know since newton anyway and there are periods of time and we happen to be in one right now when all the King's horses and all the king's men can't actually make a theory that works. Or actually, it's, it's, it's worse than that. We have a theory that works in a lot of cases called the standard model for particle physics. You know, the uh, LHC at CERN was built to verify one of the last main predictions of the standard model. And everyone thought or hoped we will verify... And we'll find new physics, and those new clues will tell us all about what happens next. Didn't happen, at least not yet. Anyway, th- that I wound up leaving physics, not really for that reason. You know, like say that since I've left particle physics or fundamental physics, quantum theories of gravitation, not that much progress has been made, but that's not because I left. <laughs> <laughs> it's not there's it's, no just, causality it's just there. Cu- it's
0: just cur- correlation no causality
1: well i um <laughs> i found other things that had a softer spot in the wall to bang yeah. my head against well initially the reason i wasn't in physics was entirely personal i had nothing to do with that and there are friends of mine who are in physics who always view me as the prodigal son who you know So you know, like like your friend from high school that became an addict or something. You know, I he went off to industry.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, uh, and not just to industry. I mean, and then to like cooking and and food science and uh, (laughs) wildlife photography. I mean, do they sometimes? You know, your good old physics friends. They're like, what What is this guy doing next? Like, what's up?
1: Well, the physics friends by now are inured to the fact I do lots of weird things. But you know, like my much newer friends in cooking kind of don't understand why I don't have a restaurant or why I waste my time doing other stuff. The same thing is with my dinosaur friends. They're like, Hey, you know why? Why aren't you out here? <laughs> you're, you're digging stuff up or doing more research. Why are you wasting your time taking pictures of food or whatever it is I'm doing at the moment?
0: And is it like also a type of restlessness? I mean, are you, do you like to rest? Do you like time off? Or is that also for you, that kind of motion and activity is actually relaxing and you get a little tense when, when you don't have stuff to do?
1: Well, it, it takes a lot to get me bored because I'll wind up going and figuring something else out or getting interested in some other topic. Or, you know, I, I used to carry huge sacks of books around. The great thing about Kindle is now my phone is full <laughs> of uh, of books on all kinds of topics. So there's usually something for me to read if I'm stuck in a waiting room somewhere. I suppose it is kind of restless. Not so much because I get unhappy as I want to go do a bunch of things. And you know, for the last month, I've been traveling almost nonstop because... I decided this year I wanted to go storm chasing. So I went and chased tornadoes uh, for a week. And then I went to um, photograph something called red sprites, which are an exotic form of lightning that's very hard to photograph, but we managed to to do it. Then I had to go see the cicada emergence in the eastern United States Every 17 years, these bugs called cicadas come out of the ground and take over the whole place. (laughs) Then, very shortly, I've got to have an opportunity to go try to photograph uh, fireflies. You know, this is the luminescent bugs um, with stars in the background.
0: So, you're never really in the need of like, you know, mindfulness or like keeping your mind sort of, you know, giving it time off or. Do you try to incorporate just, you know, that type of exercise into what you're doing? Or is it something that you're like, that's, you know, new age stuff. Like, I just, you know, do what I'm interested well, in and it works.
1: You know, I, 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 sl- I do get tired and I do sleep. You know, I will admit to that. <laughs> um, in terms of mental inactivity as a positive virtue, I don't get it. Sorry, I mean I. I'm not to, not to say that people who are into that are wrong. I mean it may well be right for them, but not really for me. And if if there's something terribly disappointing or depressing or some other calamity occurs, it makes me more interested in diving into something deeply than not less so.
0: Well, I think um. we got to know you a little bit better. Um, you know, and <laughs> and uh, it's it's maybe time now to just. Look at some of the stations in, in your life. So I, I do want to, uh, you know, get some juicy learnings out of uh, you know you work as an academic, as a tech founder, as an executive, um, as a food scientist, as a photographer, um, as a general innovator and speaker. So let's start, you know, sequentially. Like when you were working uh, at Cambridge University in theoretical physics and and doing research with Professor Harkin. I mean, was that for you at that stage already, a, you know, a big thing, like to work with? Oh, yeah. And, and then why did you leave? Like, to, when did you make that cut and say, well, that's amazing, but actually, I want to found my own thing?
1: Well, it, it never quite worked exactly that way. It, you know, if, if you trace evolution from single-celled animals up to us, No one ever asked the organisms, hey, would you like to go become intelligent? Go do this, go do that. (laughs) No, I wound up taking a temporary leave of absence Mm -hmm. from uh, Cambridge, which was initially supposed to be for three months. And then it just got extended and extended. And then Microsoft, I started this company, Microsoft bought this company. You know, many years later, when I retired from Microsoft, I got email the next day from Stephen saying, shall we clear the office out for you? <laughs> <laughs> Hoping I was going to come back.
0: And would you um, like to donate?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, and I still love physics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At the moment, there are lots of other things that are They're easier to time slice in and out of Uh, fundamental physics has a tremendous amount of not just prerequisites, but there's a tremendous amount of activity you have to be aware of. So to jump into the middle of the state of the art is actually fairly uh, difficult. It's much easier in newer fields where it, it just it takes less time to jump to the state of the art and actually be involved in something that's scientifically important. You
0: did though at Microsoft. You stayed for fourteen years, so that was yes. uh, a proper time commitment. Um, maybe draw us this image, like you when you got to Microsoft. How small was it, and and how much did you feel back then already that this is a rocket ship that I want to stay on. Because you know that person, Bill Gates, or that product, or that team, or that culture um, just convinced you to do so.
1: I, I joined Microsoft in 1986, and it was very clear to me that it was writing a technology that was going to change the world. Microsoft had a motto at the time, a computer on every desk and in every home. And people ridiculed that. It's hard to believe that today when, of course, not only do we have a computer in every uh, desk and uh, on every in every home, but in every pocket. Actually, all of the devices around us are computers. And it was very clear to me that was going to happen. And so, yeah, for 14 years, I managed to give one thing in my life 80% of my time. But part of that only worked because the technology was changing you know, I wasn't really doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I had opportunities like starting Microsoft Research and it was just an incredible situation. You know, if I had been, well, I did start a software company before Microsoft and if they had not acquired uh, us, I would have probably started some other company because it was clear that the personal computer revolution was going to be quite profound for the world.
0: And you work very closely with, Bill Gates and um, it's obviously always interesting you know for also our audience, you know, which is comprised of many people that start their own companies or have leadership positions in companies, you know to better understand you know what makes somebody like Bill Gates such an effective manager or founder or visionary like are there some well, traits that you could share with us
1: yeah, I, I think one of the most important ones is that Bill isn't afraid to admit if he's wrong. Um, you know, a lot of people, particularly as they become you know, elevated to be CEO and you know, they're at the end of some long table with all these people and they're in control. If somebody says no, that's wrong, there's a natural ego thing mm-hmm. to view that as like you're challenging me or some other thing. And you know, telling Bill that he's wrong, if he isn't wrong, isn't probably the, the smartest thing on earth. But <laughs> he was always very willing to accept if he was wrong, mm-hmm. and to me that was very endearing because, you know, he he really—it's not that he didn't have an ego. He he actually has much less of an ego than popular things make it out to be. But I think he has a intelligent person's intellectual honesty that he'd much rather admit he was wrong than go blithering on and have a whole bunch of people nod their head that he's right even when he's totally (laughs) isn't you know that that would be more embarrassing to him And, and so i think that was probably the single biggest thing is that you could convince him that
0: he was wrong Like uh, Jeff Bezos also says, uh, if you want to be right a lot, you have to change your mind a lot.
1: (laughs) Well, that's right. (laughs) And if you don't change your mind in the face of evidence or other arguments, uh, sometimes you've got a special insight that other people aren't quite grasping. So it's a little bit like your when do you stop question. Just stopping because somebody else uh, says uh, you're wrong. Oh, that's not. That's not smart either, mm-hmm. but yeah, of course you have to be ready to change your mind. Well, which is why it's always funny to me that a common criticism of politicians is, "Oh, they're wishy-washy; they change their
0: position." It's like, "Well, God, you better change your mind." <laughs> Absolutely. Would you say that you were sort of in the leadership team at at, at Microsoft? Was that, you know? In when it came to like making decisions on on product and, and markets, etc., were you data obsessed, like you know, Amazon is today, or was there also a lot of intuition at play?
1: Well, eh, both things are important. You know, there's only a certain class of problem on which you have data. And that is many of the most important things fall into this category where there isn't a lot of data or it's it's unknown. So it, the biggest example of this is during this personal computer revolution, we went from 8-bit computers to 16-bit to 32-bit to 64-bit. The computers continued to get enormously more powerful. And at every stage, there was someone who says, yeah, but this is as powerful as we'll ever need. And they would often have reasonable-sounding arguments. And of course, you can't have data because that person is explicitly, you're talking about what's going to happen in two years or three years or five years. Now, to me, it was really obvious that people who said that were always, always, always wrong. But you can't prove they're wrong because you don't have the data. Another aspect of that is it's very hard to understand what exponential growth really could do. Warren Buffett likes to say that people don't really understand compound interest. And compound interest is a one mathematical way of talking about exponential growth.
0: He calls it the wonder here. of the world, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. He says it's the, the last wonder of the world, the undiscovered one.
1: Well, it, it, and... When it comes to things that have, Warren gets excited about, you know, 7% per annum. Wow, that's, and he's become fabulously wealthy uh, because of it. In the computer industry, you can have 100% per annum. And you can have people who are in that industry who feel super sophisticated and they're senior executives at Microsoft and so on and so forth. And yet they don't really get what it's going to do in 10 years. I used to call this the difference between linear extrapolation and exponential. You know, we're humans are okay at linear extrapolation, Mm -hmm. but this doubling thing just catches up to you. I I was once giving a presentation to a Microsoft executive retreat about how we had to do pocket computers and smartphones. And one of the executives got up and said, oh, come on, Nathan. They're going to sell like a million a year. And we'll get like $10 each. And that'll be like $10 million a year. So what? And I like drew in my breath. I was going to try to defend myself. And before I could, Bill Gates just shot across. And he says, so what was your estimate of the size of the microcomputer industry in 1986? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was just silence and we went on. And that was really one of the things is Bill did get it. And he did understand how you could go from revolution to revolution, totally changing everything underneath.
0: How long was your time horizon at, at research? Like, did you make 20, 30, 50-year plans, 100-year plans even? And what were maybe some of the wildest things you were wrong on?
1: Of course, research... Is about doing stuff that you don't know if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. So, whenever you say, "Well, how many years out are you planning?" And you never know. And you, in fact, you know pretty clearly that some of the projects, the answer will be never. This project will fail, and it will fail, and you or the rest of the world will probably give up on it. You know, long before you get to hundred years. <laughs> You know, the other thing is, it's very difficult to make extrapolations that are both grounded in reality and, you know, go out very far. Uh, Moore's Law, this property of semiconductors and computers to continue to get faster, that has been with us for a ridiculously long period of time. People have continued to say forever, this is it, this is it, it'll be over in another two years. They've always been wrong. Someday they might be right. And they might be right because you reach fundamental limits. So far, when people make arguments based on fundamental limits, they've always been wrong, fortunately. Uh, But someday that may occur. And if you then say, oh, let's extrapolate from today's computers to quantum computers, well, okay, you can try to do that. But, and it's amusing to do that, but. Because we don't know enough about quantum computing, at a certain point, you're just making stuff up. (laughs) You know, I used to say that we were trying to create really boring science fiction. It's fiction because it's not true today, but it's boring because you've got a reasonable chance of it being true. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's a good one.
1: Uh, Unlike things which are exciting and fun to talk about, but which there's really no near term prospect that we either have the technology or the basic knowledge
0: to figure it out but the impact will be even for the boring uh, science fiction that may well come true the impact will be humongous on the world yes. on on the you know future of work on you know things you know from automation to you know super ai bioengineering i mean there's so many What's your, like? are you tech optimist, like 100%? or oh, I'm are there totally things- an optimist. Okay. I
1: mean, it's another one of, there's a set of patterns of thought that people have had for a very, very long time, which are essentially always wrong. And there's no law of physics that states they're always wrong. But the first one is human specialness. Okay, we used to think literally the entire universe was revolved around us. Well, that turned out to be absurd. And, well, not only does the sun not revolve around the earth, it's the other way around, but the sun is actually a pretty boring, you know, star in a galaxy of billions and billions of stars in a universe of billions and billions of galaxies. We're not special. Now. When people say, oh, does that mean that we're alone out there? A huge amount of the we're alone arguments amount to human specialness. And it's possible we're alone, I I can't prove to you that we're not, but you have to always check yourself a little bit because that human specialness argument is so intrinsically attractive to human beings you know, the same thing to do with AI, like, oh, will we ever make intelligent machines? Well, whenever someone phrases it that way, they're almost always some narcissist human lover. You're know, like, oh, wow, we're so smart. And look, we are smart, which is, is wonderful. I love it.
0: Are we so, not well, smart we enough just, to understand the brain?
1: We certainly don't understand the brain yet. I think we will.
0: With the help of technology.
1: Well, it, technology always enables inquiry. You develop new instruments, new approaches, new uh, all sorts of things. So it's clear that Greek philosophers, even though they puzzled about the brain, it was pretty clear they were not going to figure it out. <laughs> and uh, even though they were really smart guys, they figured a lot of other stuff out. No, you need technological hints. Same thing do with physics. Yeah, you know, uh, Newton figured a lot of stuff out with very little evidence. But we really do need to have particle accelerators and giant telescopes and things like that if we want to figure out the rest of the universe. So, so human specialness is one of those things that's always wrong. Another thing is the downside of new technology. Oh, technology is going to destroy us. Well, that's a second cousin to human specialness. That's the notion of I feel threatened. And when I feel threatened and that things are going to change, it's all scary out there. And there's boogeyman and there's monsters or demons or whatever the hell. And this idea that technology will destroy us has always been wrong. You know, if you look at the (laughs) Uh, the people who were anti-technology in England in the 19th century, there's a movement called the Luddites. You know what the Luddites hated? They hated an invention, which is this ring about this big around that had little teeth all the way around it. And it was called a stocking frame. And it made knitting stockings vastly faster. And they thought that was going to ruin all of the uh, then-industrializing England. And, of course, they had it exactly backwards. The Industrial Revolution didn't destroy the workers. It enormously empowered and, and enriched them. Now, and people say, oh, but look, there was industrial accidents. Oh, look, there was this. Oh, of course, the, the world always has problems. And there's always some downside. But you net-net, know, the ability of people to find positive applications of technology has been just incredible. Uh, you know, another thing these days, a trendy way to say this is, oh, but it's not sustainable. Guess what? It has not been sustainable every goddamn day since we stopped becoming hunter-gatherers. You can argue hunter-gatherers are sustainable. But as soon as you start doing agriculture, well, then this thing happens. Well, then that happens. And agriculture is, by its very essence, difficult to make sustainable. And that's because we harvest things. You know, if we just grew crops and then plowed them back into the earth, It'd be really easy. But instead, we will plant a hectare of land, grow crops, then we'll harvest tons and tons of food from that hectare, and we'll cart it off some other place and we'll eat it. (laughs) Well, we have to have some way of putting that back. And there are ways which are more or less destructive to the environment. And Look, I'm not saying that I'm anti-environment. I'm very pro-environment. But the idea that there was some golden age of man when if we just you know turn the clock back to the nineteen thirties or the eighteen fifties or the seventeen, whatever bullshit.
0: Not the thirties, please.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, World War II, in all of its absolute horrors, laid the foundation for a vastly better world today. You know, the increase in technology in so many areas. Now, these days, it turns out we stimulate technology at an even faster rate than a war without having a war. So not only is it not necessary to have a war, it's a terrible idea to have a war to stimulate technology. We stimulate it with our own demand for it. And that demand... So far, and I think there's every reason to believe this will continue, is something that's tended to be more positive over time.
0: I mean, I generally agree with you, but for the sake of uh, argument, playing devil's advocate, like the, you know, if the demand is being gamed, because algorithms understand very well how to game our brains and thereby our our demand and, and behavior. Then, you know, could it not take a turn towards, you know, being just detrimental, more detrimental than some of these applications already are for our, you know, democracy, for mental health among teenagers and all sorts of.
1: Look, somebody figured out how to ferment and then later how to distill alcohol. And that it turns out that we have a weakness for that, which from an evolutionary perspective, I don't totally understand because there's no obvious reason we should like alcohol, but we do.
0: Well, we made more often, maybe under, <laughs> under the influence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, certainly there are things that we have figured out mm-hmm. that are, you know, smoking cigarettes, right? The, this was the, the great, the, the two big things that the Americas did Europe went and plundered the Americas, brought them smallpox, you know, totally committed genocide across North and South America. The the two last laughs that the Americas had on Europe was tobacco and syphilis. <laughs> but you know we like tobacco, and that's killed millions and or probably billions of people by now, uh, or led to other health things that statistically would have. Build them. So, of course, there's negatives. We have plenty of negatives without technology, right? I mean, the, certainly the technology of fermentation or distillation is very simple. Uh, we, we are sex obsessed, which there's a strong evolutionary reason for that. But then when it goes into pornography and objectifying people or child pornography, we can all agree it's pretty negative. But any technology, no matter what it is, if it's newly invented, people will wonder two things. First, they'll say, can I make, use it for porn? And the second thing is they'll say, can I use it as a weapon? And throughout history, almost everything <laughs> has been used in one of those modes. So of course, there's lots of downsides, but I am optimistic that we're good at figuring it out. And when you say, oh, wouldn't it be possible for it to be negative? man, we are such worry warts that people worry about that pretty much constantly. And the attraction of saying, oh my God, we're going to lose our culture because like uh, I, I'm older than you. My generation was supposed to be all completely ruined by television because we got to watch TV as kids. And that was going to just, like, totally make us idiots. And it was called the boob tube. Well, That didn't work, but your generation had computer games. And actually those games are still with us. They're just like 500 times better. (laughs) So, you know, if babies born today, people will say the same thing. Oh, computer games are going to ruin them and all this. And it turns out humans are very, very resilient to such things. And almost all of the worrying is either people being threatened that the old order of things will change, or people genuinely being concerned, and those concerns kind of mean it's not going to happen.
0: One, I guess one thing that humans may not be so resilient towards is, is climate change. And you actually have discussed ways to reverse some of the effects of global warming by using uh, geoengineering. For example, you're also vice chairman of TerraPower, which is a, a spin-out that is developing a new kind of nuclear reactor. Is that you know humanity's greatest challenge? And
1: well, it's people have a we have human nature, and human nature has a variety of things about it. One is instant gratification is a lot more fun than delayed gratification or no gratification. One aspect of that is people who smoke or drink or eat too much, and I'm one of them. It's not like I'm pointing at other people here. When it myself, even though we know we should eat in moderation and exercise a lot and whatever, do we all do it? Nah. So from that perspective, global warming is a very difficult problem. It's like the worst problem you could imagine for human nature. When people started becoming environmentally conscious, the first thing they turned to was horrific situations. Like in the United States, there was an area called Love Canal that had all these horrible, horrible chemicals dumped in it. Then people built housing over it, and they got, babies got birth defects. It's terrible. But it's so terrible and also so localized, those problems tend to get fixed. Well, this problem is not local. It's all over the world. And also this problem, at present, our understanding of the problem is if we wanted to avoid it, it would mean we would have to give up things we love because almost everything we love as a broad society involves using energy so we'll have to give up a whole bunch of stuff for is that for an immediate benefit no it's for a benefit in maybe 100 years so those things make it extremely difficult for the world to do anything about it and which is why the first order approximation, so far, we've done nothing about it. Now, people say, oh, look, there's all these renewables and all these other things. And the fact is, even with COVID shutting down a huge amount of the world's economy, the CO2 levels, as they measure them in the mountain in Hawaii, it when it was up again and it'll be up again this fall when they measure it, you know, it's not a single sign that it's flattening off. So as a result, we're, we're going to just keep putting it off, I believe, until such time as the results become very serious. Now, the problem with climate change is not only does it have a long timescale for the results to get really bad, but it also has a long timescale for anything being fixed after that. If we shut off all emission tomorrow, just boom, which, of course, we can't do, and I'm not suggesting. But if we did, the temperature would continue to rise for about 100, 110 years. It would then start to slowly fall, and we would reach 20, 21 levels of temperature, again, about 145 to 150 years from now. So the problem with climate change is I'm afraid what we're going to do is keep putting it off, keep doing token political gestures that don't actually do anything, and then when we panic, we will have locked in another century of pain, which is why the alternative is to say, well, look, we screwed the climate up. Is there a technological way we can help fix it? And The answer is yes, actually. In fact, it's it's not even all that difficult. Now, it's an idea that's very controversial. And it's controversial because people have, I think, different views as to what the problem is and what the goal is. (laughs) There's a set of people. Let me back up. When I was a little boy, I got this little book called The Little Engine That Could. And it was about a little train. They had to carry a really heavy load over the mountains. And all the big trains were afraid. And the little train started off saying, I think I can, I think I can. And then later on, it says, I know I can, I know I can. And it gets over the mountain and saves the children in the next village. Okay. The idea is to teach children perseverance. It goes back to your when do you stop question. Well, a lot of people think that the climate problem is like that. That if we as a society just said, I'm going to do it, we could do it. And that all we have to do is say, I think I can, I think I can. And so if I talk about geoengineering, those people get mad. and They say, God damn it, Nathan, we're trying to get them to concentrate on I think I can. And you are off there distracting them. Saying, oh, they're never going to do anything anyway, so we're gonna have to do geoengineering. You know, it's it's like I'm the I'm the one undercutting this positive message of little train. Well, the fact is, you can't just decide to make it better. No one is actually going to adopt it in any meaningful scale at our current level of technology. You know, yeah, we've grown in renewables a lot, and that's great. The trouble is during the periods when we, renewables were growing like crazy, coal was also going like crazy because we had this other weird thing that prosperity broke out. And a huge dream of human society to erase poverty has been happening in Asia. Not as much in and South America, not as much as you'd like in Africa. But as the Chinese become more wealthy, they use more energy, and that's made the coal demands go up.
0: I think we um, will have to maybe here uh, link in the footnotes to some of the ideas, just being mindful of the time um, as we are approaching uh, the hour. But uh, you've, you've made a few very concrete examples also, uh, including one that would use hoses suspended from helium balloons 25 kilometers yes. above the earth at high latitudes um, to emit sulfur dioxide which is known to scatter light. I mean, really intriguing stuff, and we'll link to it. I want to also talk to you about your work with intellectual ventures, which uh-huh. is you know, which I'd mentioned in the beginning, a patent portfolio developer and broker. It was also being criticized as a, a patent troll. I didn't even know that word. But uh, you know, my question just concretely on the you know you being an expert in the field, you know, since we're having this discussion around the COVID nineteen vaccination uh, patents, and uh, you know whether one should you know license these for free to developing countries uh, across the world, what's your what's your take on that? For, I'm very, in general,
1: mm-hmm. I would say I'm very in favor of creating incentives for uh, inventors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in the field of healthcare. It's a particularly difficult one because we have two very conflicting goals. On one hand, we'd like prescription drugs and medicines to be cheap. On the other hand, we also want them to be very safe. And we mandate a set of activities around them to test them that make just testing one cost a billion dollars. And many of them fail after that billion dollars. And I understand both instincts. Like, oh, yes, we look, it's to everyone on Earth's interest to vaccinate everybody on Earth against COVID. It's in my interest and yours. So how do we do that? If we do that in a way that means we're not going to have companies develop the vaccines in the future, we will have shot ourselves in the foot. So the idea of saying, oh, let's just give them for free, I think that's probably not a very good idea. That said, the wealthy part of the world, Europe, the developed parts of Asia, the United States, we can surely afford to vaccinate the rest of the world. The rest of the world ought to make some contribution because they're not all equally poor. But for the very poorest people, of course they should have free vaccines. And it's absurd for us to do otherwise. If you are among the very poorest people on earth and you're earning a dollar or two a day, which doesn't really mean a dollar or two a day, it means some weird food equivalent or something. Uh, and many days you're earning zero. If you're that person, you can't afford a vaccine. But when the pandemic strikes, it's us in the rich world that lose a trillions and trillions of dollars in our economy. So it's very foolish for us to not reach in our pockets and pay some reasonable amount. You know, so I think just making them free sets a bad precedent. But yes, they should be cheap. And yes, we should find a way to finance them. Because if we don't, what will happen is the virus Will circulate among those unvaccinated poor people until it develops a version that will escape our vaccine, and it'll come and fuck the whole rest of the world again. So pure self-interest should cause us to do that. Sure. And yep. I'm hoping the world gets its act together on it. You know, you know the one of the problems with this pandemic. This is going to sound weird. But it's horrible. But it's not quite horrible enough for us to I'm afraid, it might not be horrible enough for us to like do something different. A hundred years ago, we had a horrible pandemic. But we also had a horrible world war at the time. We had another world war after that, and we basically hit the snooze button. And it was obvious for, for years, I told everyone there was going to be another pandemic. Tons of other people did too. It's not just me. I hope this pandemic is taken seriously enough that we figure out what's in our own damn self-interest. You can make a strong moral case for helping the most disadvantaged people on Earth, of course. And I totally endorse that. But even if you say, I don't give a flying fuck about anyone apart from my countrymen, even then, you really have to try to solve this as a global problem. And unfortunately, the politics of isolationism, of saying we only care about our country and fuck the rest of the world, they don't quite understand where their self-interest
0: really lies, I'm afraid. It's fuel, yeah. It's fuel um, for the virus, basically. Lastly, I wanna uh, cover also you know, you know, what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you spend most of your time on these days, um, which is you being a food scientist, um, and you work with uh, modernist cuisine. Um, the incredible, you know, cookbooks that you've uh, released, but also the galleries that are run. You've been honored with, you know, the James Beard Foundation awards, tons of other awards. I mean, it's been really well received. Your work there, and you work as a photographer, which um, next to food also covers uh, wildlife photography. Lightning, as we as we've just heard, is that what you focus most of your time on, on? And you know, will we see more in that space? Well, it's
1: it's episodic. I mean, there's times that I focus on one thing and then another, and I, I try to have a couple things going at any one point in time. I, I certainly have worked pretty hard the last three years on a the next book in our series, which is Modernist Pizza.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice, um, that's a cross teaser.
1: For that, I had to travel to about three hundred of the best pizzerias on earth. Who are you? Pizza. <laughs> well, when you do five pizzerias a day, wow, for a couple of weeks, it, it does become work after a while.
0: <laughs> it's work and not work out. <laughs> um, yes. Okay, so wow, this is really how you approach this. You went to so many pizzerias, and what did you do? Did you? you know, have sort of uh, scientific investigation? Uh, Did you run experiments with them? Did you taste all the pizzas?
1: Well, pizza is a very funny kind of food in that it is particularly full of superstitions, secret recipes, special Mm -hmm. techniques. Almost anywhere you go in the world, there's a kind of pizza that people will say, mine is the best, Mm -hmm. and only I know the secret.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And... Look, they can't all be right, and in fact, most of them are wrong. For some kinds of cuisine, you can get a good sense of the cuisine from books because the cuisine tends to be very well documented.
0: French cuisine? or
1: French cuisine is a great example. Or if I just take high-end cuisine, Mm -hmm. there are Michelin three-star restaurants all over the world, and one of the things you do if you have a Michelin three-star restaurant is you write cookbooks Mm -hmm. a little bit as an income source, but mostly it's a ego thing. Mm -hmm. And mostly those people tell the truth with those recipes Mm -hmm. because they're trying to impress their peers. And if they lie with a recipe that doesn't really work, their peers will know, right? So for French cuisine or Italian cuisine or high-end, any kind of cuisine, oh, you get all the books in the world on it. Pizza isn't that way. Pizza is in this weird thing of, you know, I won't even tell my son until I'm on my deathbed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, reminds so me of Jiro's
0: uh, Dream of Sushi, sorry. Just a short interjection you know. where, where, you know, the, 80, the, the 67-year-old son of Jiro of says he's still not good enough to follow exactly. the, f- and he's the footsteps an
1: apprentice. <laughs> apprentice. <laughs> and in Giro's case many of those things where he's still not good enough are not something you could write down anyway it's the mm-hmm. hand controlling the knife with mm-hmm. precision or some other thing so anyway so we did go to to lots of top pizzerias we photographed their pizza we tried it An interesting thing is that the top pizza pizzolos of the world were very open with us. Uh, There were some people who would say, No, this is my secret recipe. I won't tell you. Mm -hmm. But almost always, those were people who had a pizza that we didn't actually like.
2: Mm -hmm. It's
1: like, actually, I'm fine not learning your pizza. It (laughs) sucks. I wouldn't say that, but uh, it, it turned out to be true. And we also collected every pizza book in the world. Mm-hmm. Of which there's a lot, and we did enormous numbers of experiments, and uh, that it's uh, we're hoping to have the definitive book on pizza.
0: And what what are some of the you know some of the learning some of the spoilers uh, you can give? Is it the Napolitan uh, pizza? You know, does that hold true as being the best in the world? The thin crust, uh, Frank Sinatra special. Okay, well special. you really put
1: me on the spot. So. Ah. There are excellent pizzas of many different styles. You know, the Neapolitan pizzas are the ones where there's the largest number of pizzolos actively competing with each other.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the quality at the very best Neapolitan pizzerias Mm -hmm. is is very high.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: New Haven is sort of a diametric opposite. New Haven is the worst pizza on earth. Relative to its reputation, (laughs) because that is where everything is secret. There, they wouldn't tell us a thing. Oh, interesting. Uh huh. Uh, Actually, a couple of them did tell us. Yeah, you know, like on the slide, just don't tell. We told. Yeah, but they make lots of fundamental cooking errors in in making the crust and the making the pizza. You know, they the typical New Haven pizza has no salt. Or almost mm-hmm. no salt in the crust.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, no salt makes it taste like cardboard. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. And then it also is super low hydration. Well, that's terrible. And then they burn it.
0: I mean, I love it, but I, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. I like the okay, cr- now, I like the crispy. Can you tell me another a crispy pizza? Because the the Neapolitan for me is too soft.
1: Well, so it turns out here's the first interesting thing in Naples. Or in, you know, Berlin or London mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or Seattle, Neapolitan is soft.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In the rest of Italy, okay, even people who make Neapolitan style pizzas make it slightly crispy, mm-hmm. and I find that very funny because Americans that try Neapolitan pizzas say, "Oh God, it's soft. What's the matter?" Um, and then then they say, "No, you dumb American. It's supposed to be that way," except. The rest of Italy doesn't even agree. I do like the soft pizza if it's made by one of the really great pizzerias. But Sao Paulo, Brazil, has super thin, super crispy pizza. Hmm. And that could be really good. Detroit in the United States has a very thick bread-like pizza. And the funny thing about Detroit pizza is the worst place on earth to have it is, in fact, in Detroit. because people in Detroit who make a Detroit pizza are trying to do the same recipe that their granddad invented. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a Detroit pizza, say in Chicago, there's a fantastic Detroit pizza in Chicago at a place called Polly G's. There, it's someone who's really trying to do something new and different and they try to excel at it. Another thing that's funny is Old, famous pizzerias are terrible. You really want to go to a pizzeria where it was founded by somebody who's still alive, who still comes in and works there. The older,
0: the better, but still alive.
1: Well, not even necessarily the older, the better. It's the people who are competing yep. and working hard every day. Mm-hmm. Now, Giro is an example of an old guy who still says he works very hard every day to make his sushi better. And I believe it, but most famous places, particularly if the founder is no longer with them, they're kind of going through the motions, copying what was state of the art 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Here's the other thing is the idea of an old recipe being good is absurd with pizza because Most of the ingredients have changed enormously for the better in the meantime. The flour that we have now is vastly better than the flour of even 20 or 30 years ago.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There was pizza in Naples in the 19th century. And by today's standards, it was terrible. It wasn't that thing that they have today. The pizza that we know in Naples today was created in the 50s through the 60s in response to flour imported from Canada. After World War II, uh, they got a lot of hard winter wheat flour from Manitoba. And so it's called in in Italian Farine di Manitoba. And there's local Italians who in uh, uh, Naples that will then mill flour from Canada and from around the world, making the very best flour. And it's vastly better. So, of course, you have to change the recipe to take advantage of that. Have you had
0: a good gluten-free one or you try to steer away?
1: What a good gluten-free pizza generally means is a pizza that has lots of sauce and cheese and sausage on it. to distract you from the cardboard crust that you're eating, which is perfectly fair in in cooking. And there are certainly gluten-free pizzas I've tasted that are better than a frozen regular pizza Mm -hmm. or a a pizza from one of the big pizza chains. So you can make gluten-free pizza that's relatively good. You can't make it as good as you make the real wheat flour pizza, at least for me.
0: And have you seen sort of, you know, like, do you also study the, you know, happiness level, you know, or the general contentment of, you know, these um, pizza masters and compared to, you know, chefs in general, which I think statistically at least, you know, suffer, you know, from higher degrees of depression and and suicide and so forth than than many other uh, professions out there. But then, you know, when you have something that is very repetitive, um, like a pizza, where it is this, you know, Japanese kind of concept of shokunin, you know, to just, you yeah. know, better your craft day by day, you've seen maybe the chefs, the masters being, you know, more content in, in doing or? Well,
1: it's very hard to make a generalization. You know, in the United States, your pizza is probably being made by a high school student or dropout who's mm-hmm. getting minimum wage. Okay, that's, that's the reality of it. In almost, not every case, there are some mm-hmm. artisanal pizzerias, but 99% of the pizzas, what I just said was, is true. Now, that's also true for most pizzas in most countries. The difference is if you go to Italy, the top pizzolos all wear chef's jackets. Nowhere else in the world do they do that. And they have a degree of respect and admiration in the community that's, uh, that's higher. 20 years ago or 50 years ago, one of the problems in the United States is that every chef was basically minimum wage. It was considered a low-end profession. You know, If a man was a lawyer or a doctor and his son became a chef, it was an embarrassment. Well, that changed. So now in the United States, if you say your son is a chef, it's it's cool. And that's necessary to get good people to go into those areas. One of the great advantages France has had is that it's honored chefs forever.
0: For hundreds of years, it mm-hmm. was cool if you became a chef. I mean, It'll- pizza is the highest margin. Uh, one of the highest margin, I guess things you can do as a restaurateur, correct?
1: Well, the restaurant business is very difficult. Yes, if you have lots of people coming, Hmm. you're charging a markup on cheap ingredients. Now, that also leads to a problem, which is so many people love pizza. They would be willing to spend more money for it. But there's also an element of society who says, oh, pizza should be cheap. So... That's a problem that you find in all over the world, actually, where people will say, gee, a, a pizza has to be, if you charge more than a, you know, a few dollars or a few euros for a pizza, you're, it's not in the spirit of the food of the people and whatever. Meanwhile, there's other people who drove up to the pizzeria in a Mercedes
0: and they'd say, look, I'd be happy to spend more. Just don't put shit quality cheese on it. I want real cheese. You come from this also, you know, from a very scientific uh, approach, right? You know, to be a great chef, like you want to be more of an artist or more of a scientist or you are the Da Vinci type? Well, just-
1: it's, it's both. You, you need both. You know, if you look at, I like to use architecture as an example. Architecture for most buildings is not art. It's very prosaic. It's engineering. It's about keeping the rain off your head. On the other hand, architecture can be art, and it can be astoundingly great. But for architecture to be art, you still need the building to stand up. And in fact, you probably need to understand the engineering of buildings even more if you're, say, Frank Geary making these crazy shaped buildings than a traditional architect. So in the same way, you know, a a great chef needs to understand how cooking actually works. And the more innovative you are, the more you need to understand. You know, if you're happy with the recipe that says, do this, do this, do this, and then you get a result, well, fine, then then you're not going to buy my books. My books are only important if you want to understand how it works. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding how it works is both fun and it's necessary if you're going to innovate and make something new or make something really great.
0: Next book. Do you know after that one, are we seeing one on on Chinese cuisine? I remember there's a James Beard quote I always uh, look for since Chinese is my favorite cuisine. Where he says that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, the French, the Italian cuisine, sure, you know, well advanced, but the most kind of flavorful, the most diverse, and to him the most interesting um, is the Chinese.
1: Uh, Well, I think we're going to wind up doing pastry before we do Chinese. Yep. But the thing about Chinese food is that Chinese food is a lot like saying European food.
0: Sure.
1: Because... You're European, I'm of European background. We understand that you can't lump Swedes and Italians into the same mix. Yeah. And it's not all the same thing. But when it comes to China or India or Africa, it's very simple for us to do that. Yeah. Uh, With China, it's particularly so because there were generations of expatriate Chinese that mostly came from Canton or Guangdong, now you'd call it. And so they mostly brought Cantonese food to the world. And that's what we think all Chinese food is. And it's very much like you know people from, I don't know, Genoa, Italy, brought a, a bunch of dishes for fish and focaccia. And everyone says, ah, yes, that's what Italian food is. Sure. In fact, Italian food is, is the funniest one In China, if you talk about Chinese food, there are some things that are across all of China, but the concept of Italian food does not exist in Italy. In Italy, it's always a Tuscan recipe or an Umbrian recipe, or it's from Campania or Sicily.
0: Every city has their sausage.
1: So I, I think Chinese food, and of course, we've seen in modern times, Sichuan food and Hunan food and some other areas of China have their, their foods come out. But I think they still have a few secrets that I'd love to have them export to closer to where I live.
0: <laughs> but pastry will be interesting and, and maybe even more scientific. My girlfriend, she's a great, um, you know, at baking. And for her, cooking is not much fun. She says it's just, you know, not precise generally enough. Like she likes, you know, the precision yeah. that, that pastry baking brings.
1: It's very easy to add salt or pepper to taste. You can't add baking powder or yeast to taste. Okay, it doesn't work. <laughs> and so, in general, yes, pastry is more precise, and it involves uh, a lot more unfamiliar ingredients. So, um, like baking powder, right? That's it's familiar because yep. we know it's out there, but Most people have no idea where it actually comes from. So the other thing about pastry is the world of pastry has cross-fertilized many, many times. Uh, You know, the traditional, most of the things you'd call a French pastry that you would get in a French patisserie are called uh, They're They're Vienna style. Now, you also couldn't find them in Vienna, mind you. But a Austrian military officer opened a patisserie in Paris and he brought the progenitor of the croissant and most of the other French pastries came that way. Hmm. In the United States, if you go and you get a sweet breakfast roll, they're generically called a Danish Danish pastry. Only you don't find them in the actual country of Denmark. Maybe my favorite one is when I was a kid, we had some relatives come come over and they brought a bunch of cookies and they were traditional Scandinavian cookies and they were made with cardamom. Well, I looked up cardamom and it's like, this isn't from Sweden. This is from India. What the fuck? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it it turns out the reason is very interesting. In the Middle Ages, there was a period when spices, the spice import was the big market. You know, Columbus was trying to find a, a faster route to the Indies for, to buy spices. That was his whole deal. And many of the other explorers, the same thing. And it turns out that that cardamom cookie is a holdover of medieval cuisine, hmm. The first cookbook in English from the 1400s has a, an interesting property. Every meat dish in this cookbook has large amounts of cinnamon in it. Now, we'd say, oh, what? Why would you put large amounts of cinnamon uh, on your meat dishes? It was during that same spice craze where... You know, you, you people had this huge attraction to any sort of exotic spice.
0: Nathan, I could uh, talk forever with you, but um, we're going <laughs> to close this off at one and a half hours almost. And I'm really grateful for your time. Just one topic uh, on, you know, very short um, that I'm just personally intrigued by. Are you a, a hodler of uh, crypto? Well, I've... I've been a
1: huge fan of cryptography for basically my whole life, and I certainly have something to do with cryptography being in Windows and in lots of other systems around the world. I'm not uh, as close a follower of the current uh, crypto world. I actually like my American Express card Mm -hmm. because it lets me spend money I don't have. Or at least I don't have on me. Mm -hmm. So I don't carry large amounts of cash, right? I I carry almost no cash. Why would you carry cash? Uh, You can pay for it with credit cards. But in order for the bill to find its way back to me, that has to be identified. I'm actually okay with that. So a lot of the, um, you know, there's a state in uh, the United States called New Hampshire that has the motto, Live free or die and there certainly are people who have that attitude about cryptocurrencies in particular that they can't possibly stand mm-hmm. the government or you know American Express or other people doing it. And I always say, why? You know it, it, I, I don't get the ideological fascination. It will be very interesting to see if. When and if quantum computing develops, what will happen to all of the value that's in um, uh, cryptocurrencies?
0: Yeah, that's one uh, one possible, I guess, danger to to the crypto system. Nathan, maybe we'll get you on the show once with uh, a crypto ideologist. Would be an interesting discussion, I'm sure. <laughs> um, well, the
1: trouble with anyone who identifies as an ideologist up front is. It- that's it. They're an ideologist, <laughs> and they have their particular idol that they worship.
0: Yeah. Will you, you know, as a final thought, uh, share your your most favorite pizza with us, or at least the the city it was in?
1: Well, it's very hard to beat uh, the pizza in Naples if it's made by one of the top uh, folks there, or in the area surrounding Naples. There's some small towns,
0: Caserta, and um, Caiazzo. Those towns and how will we find the pizza? We buy your book and, and we'll, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get the name. of. It, well,
1: the, the other thing is don't go to an old famous pizzeria.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. The, there's a couple famous pizzerias in Naples. And unfortunately, they're not very good.
0: So how do you find them? Like in all seriousness, how did you find them? Like, how do you find the, the best Naples um, pizzolos? How you, I think you referenced them when they're not maybe the, the famous ones in all the guidebooks, because those are the old ones. I, what was your process like?
1: Well, we would look up guidebooks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the first thing. Now, guidebooks have lots of bad pizzas in them. Mm-hmm. We would look up lists of the best pizzerias in the world. Mm-hmm. Those lists are terrible.
0: Foursquare, um, did you check also?
1: Foursquare, yeah. Yelp, TripAdvisor. And then usually there's local versions of those things. Yeah. In Brazil, I think there's different mm-hmm. ones than you would use in in Europe, just because they have are more popular locally. We certainly talk to locals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I talk to chefs. A lot of famous chefs in the United States will travel to Europe mm-hmm. for sure. inspiration.
0: Um, Do you remember one name in Naples of one of the pizzerias? I'm oh, putting sure. your spot. Enzo Cocha. Which one? Enzo Cocha. Enzo Cocha. That's it. That's um, my next trip. And there Franco
1: Pepe and uh, Kayatsu.
0: Okay. There's a pizzeria called 50 Kahlo in uh, Naples. Okay. Next trip. Done. Nathan, thank you so much for this. I'm a huge fan of okay. Naples, by the way. That's why maybe we ended up spending a little more time on that topic. But it's such a incredible city for so many it reasons. It is an
1: incredible city and and has been for such a long period of time. You know, the incredible history, those catacombs down under the city. And yeah. and then Vesuvius sitting there ready to blow it all up one day.
0: <laughs> Nathan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much um, for spending the time with us. And uh, hope to check in again, maybe in the future, to see what you're up to then. Because it could okay. be something totally different.
1: <laughs> it probably will. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> okay, bye.
0: And that is another wrap, folks. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Toa On Air podcast. Let me briefly tell you about our new product called Club, an online community that hosts cohort-based learning programs on things such as how to found a company, how to invest into startups, crypto, and digital transformation. You can find out more at toaclub.com. And that is Club with a K, just like we have in Berlin. If you enjoy these conversations, please do us a favor and rate us on your favorite app, The Data Monkey Needs to be Fed. And don't forget to subscribe to not miss out on our next episodes, where we will be sharing more unquarantined ideas and learnings from leaders across the field. We are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Castro, Overcast, and Spotify. Many thanks to Nathan Mierwald for sharing his knowledge and passion with all of us.